Well, good evening. Man, I tell you what, I was sitting in my office and almost was late coming down because it wasn't dark yet. <laughs> you know, I'm thinking, I got lots of time. And no, I didn't. It's taken me a little bit of time to get used to this. Do, do time changes mess you up? Yes. Which is the worst one? The one we just did, the spring forward or the fall back? This one? This is the worst one? No. Yeah, we got a 50-50 split, sounds like. Yeah, they just, I think this one probably messes me up the worst. But I have learned, if you, on this spring forward thing, if at about 6 o'clock in the evening, you'll go ahead and set your time, your clocks up ahead, you wind up going to bed when you're supposed to. Uh, it works for me, because otherwise, if I look at the clock and it says 9 o'clock, I go, ah, I got another hour or two. Nah, it always bites me, so... Well, we took a week off last week for church conference, and uh, so we're down a little bit this evening, but it's pretty outside, and that always gets us. So uh, we need to get back in the flow of what we're doing. We're going to get back into this series called When God Says Yes and You Say No, Lessons from Jonah's Journal. Uh, now, the premise here, just to kind of catch you back up to speed, the premise here is you can learn a lot about a person from their journal. You really, sometimes you can learn too much about a person from their journal, but you can learn a lot about a person. And we've looked at several journals this evening. We've looked at Albert Einstein's journal. We looked at some entries there, some entries from Mark Twain, Thomas Edison's journal, Theodore Roosevelt, Marilyn Monroe. A couple of weeks ago, we looked at John Wilkes Booth journal, which is, uh, I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. I guess in your south, it might be a good thing. In the north, it's, I don't know, I don't know. But tonight, I want to read you a very short entry from the writer Nathaniel Hawthorne. Anybody heard of Nathaniel Hawthorne? Yep, if you're a literature buff, you've heard of Nathaniel. When he and, and Sophie Peabody, when they were married, they both started keeping journals. And usually the journals were full of love letters about their spouse, but they both kept journals, and occasionally they would swap their journals. Now, that would get me in trouble. It just would, but worked for them and they'd swap their journals and and then when they'd filled up their journals they would put them away and start on new journals and they just did this throughout their marriage and here's an entry from Nathaniel Hawthorne's journal about his wife a rainy day a rainy day and I do verily believe there is no sunshine in this world except what beams from my wife's eyes oh now there's a guy who's either really in love or he knows how to make points you know he's writing going I know she's going to read this so I'm writing this down one of the two uh, so guys that's the bar that's the mark you have to hit husbands if you're going to do this and so good luck the one thing I have over my wife I don't have much over her but the one thing I have over her is uh, we dated for three years and this has nothing to do with Jonah, so just hang on with me for a minute. It's just a side trip. We dated for three years, and it was 95% of those three years was long distance, maybe even more. Uh, she was either away at college, and I was home, and nobody could afford gas to drive four hours to see the other person. And, and it's during the time where all we had was landlines, right? No cell phones nor FaceTime, no text, just a big old phone with a cord on the walls, all we had. 
And we couldn't use it either because all the phone calls were long distance, which meant they were pricey. So for three years, we did snail mail. We wrote letters for three years. I can't believe, looking back on it now, I can't believe I did that. I could not tolerate that now, but we did. Guess who kept the letters? Me. She threw all of hers away. And I have all of hers in a box. And every once in a while, I have to remind her. You know, if I get in trouble or something, it's just a little ace in the hole I have to have. So I don't even know where I was going with that. Oh, he's making Nathaniel Hawthorne, making points with his wife. So we're talking about journals because the book of Jonah reads much like a journal. It reads like a journal in the third person and written after the fact. But you do realize that Moses wrote after the fact, don't you? I mean, Moses wasn't there at creation. That was written after the fact. Moses wrote most of the Pentateuch, most of the first five books, after the fact. So Jonah's written after the fact, and it's written in third person, but it still reads a lot like a journal. Um, and not only is the, the book of Jonah a, a prophetic book, Jonah was a prophet to the nation of Israel, the northern kingdom. Uh, not only is it a prophetic book, it turns everything upside down on its head. It really does. It mixes everything up. For instance, where most prophetic books are about the prophecy, the book of Jonah is about the prophet. It's a flip. Where most prophetic books are long and involved, Jonah's book is really short, and most of it's narrative. I mean, you look at the prophecies of Isaiah, and they're humongous. You look at the prophecy that Jonah gave, and it was like this long. It's just upside down. Most of the prophets prophesied to their own people. But Jonah was called to prophesy to his enemies. It's different. Uh, where most of the prophets acted better than pagans, in the book of Jonah, the pagans act better than Jonah. Which is really, I mean, can you imagine back in that time being one of God's people, how hard this book would have been to digest and accept. Where pro most prophetic books end with the state of the nation being uncertain. You get to the end of the book and you don't, you're not really sure what's going to happen to the nation. Jonah, it's the other way around. You get to the end of the book and you're not really sure about the fate of the prophet. So it's just a very interesting book. So let's do a really quick recap on the book of Jonah. Uh, do I have a slide for this? Yeah. Let's do a quick recap on the book of Jonah. Uh, Jonah opens with God calling him to travel some 550 miles to the Assyrian city of Nineveh to prophesy against it. Now, this was a problem for Jonah. Why? Because the Nineveh, the Ninevites and the city of Nineveh were hated enemies. They were deeply hated by the Israelites and by Jonah. Jonah hated them. It's not where he wanted to go. Also, they were unbelievably ruthless. I read you a, a an excerpt from a commentary about how they would torture their prisoners. Matter of fact, their torture was so ruthless that if a city looked like it was going to be overrun, there are records of cities just committing mass suicide rather than fall in the hands of the Assyrians. And this is where Jonah is supposed to go. Uh, the city of Nineveh was also extremely large for, the, for its day. 
And it had not only an outer wall, it was 100 feet by 50 feet, but it had an inner wall too. So it was like impenetrable. And so for Jonah to go and do what God told him to do, to approach this city and this people by himself, by himself with no army, it would have been a suicide mission for Jonah. I mean, God's called him to basically commit suicide by going into this, this enemy camp. And as well as we'll discover later, Jonah had trouble with his mission, not only because it looked like a suicide mission, but because he didn't want the Ninevites saved. He wanted God to destroy them. That was his desire, his heart's desire. And so he had trouble with his mission. So rather than obey God and head for Nineveh, Jonah heads for Tarshish, which is 350 miles in the opposite direction of Nineveh. I mean, he, he, didn't, he wasn't just saying to God, no, he was saying, heck no, I'm not going. 350 degree, 50 miles in 180 degree opposite direction. Uh, that tells you something about Jonah's intent on not wanting to do this. But because he refuses, then Jonah starts going down. And you see this in the text. It says Jonah goes from Samaria, he goes down to Joppa. And then when he gets to Joppa, he goes down to the docks. And when he gets to there, he goes down into a ship. And as we'll see tonight, from there he goes down into the sea and down into a fish and then down into the bottom. The Bible's making it really clear about what happens when you disobey an instruction of the Lord. You just start going down. And uh, it's interesting, if you can mark, if you mark in your Bible, go through and mark all the downwards. It's very interesting to watch that. And so, there's this storm. God's hurls, and the word is hurled. He intentionally hurls a storm at this ship. And the storm is so bad but that these veteran sailors, who have seen practically everything are scared and frightened and sure they're going to die. And they start throwing cargo over. They start praying to their gods. And finally, somebody finds Jonah deep down in the bottom of the ship. And what's Jonah doing? He's sleeping. He's sleeping. Jonah doesn't care if he dies. And so they wake him up and say, hey, pray to your God. And, and it still doesn't get any better. And Jonah doesn't pray. He just says, hey, here's what this storm is all about. And he tells them. He says, I'm the reason for this storm. And he tells them, I'm a Hebrew. And I'm disobeying and running from my God. And then they freak out. And, and so, and, and actually before you get to that, I skipped a piece. Before you get to that, they are casting lots to try to figure out whose fault this is. And the lot falls on Jonah. That's when Jonah tells them who he is. And now they're freaking out because they can't kill Jonah because this God that threw a storm at him, if we kill his prophet, what's he going to do to us? So they keep trying. They keep rowing. They keep trying to set a sail. They keep trying to do whatever they can to get out of there to no avail. And so finally, they pray to Jonah's God and says, please don't hold this against us. And they throw him overboard. They throw him overboard. Jonah hits the water hard, goes down, but when he comes up to the surface, it's like glass. 
It's that quick. It's that intentional. And you can see that from the original language. It's just glass. And so there he is. He's treading water and watching this ship disappear over the horizon. And that's where we left the story a couple of weeks ago. So we're going to pick up the story from there. And I want to give you, and you know how this works, I give you kind of a fictitious journal entry that Jonah might have written. And then we go back and look at the text to see where that kind of came from. And then we're going to tear apart the text and see what's in it. And then we'll do some takeaways. So let's look at this fictitious entry of Jonah's. I guess I dozed off. I'm still exhausted from all that's happened. I ended my last entry with me treading water in the open sea and the ship disappearing over the horizon. And I tread water as long as I could and then I tried to float. I guess I still didn't have the guts to just drown. I didn't know why God was dragging this out. But I knew it was just about over. And then I felt it. It pulled at my foot a time or two as if it were playing with me. And I yelled at the sky, it wasn't enough that I drowned, now you're going to have me torn apart and eaten? And then I and the water around me were pulled into this cavernous mouth, into a vortex, swirling rapidly like water going down a hole. When it stopped, I was in one piece, but wanting to die rather than face the horrors that came next. But it didn't happen. I found an air pocket in this cramped, foul, slimy prison. With seaweed wrapped around my head, I reached the depths, literally and emotionally, and he still would not end it. And then I realized, ending it wasn't his plan or his purpose. He wasn't dragging this out. I was. For the first time since all of this started, I prayed and submitted. I submitted. And when I did, there was a convulsing so violent that it sent me tumbling and twisting in a horrid muck. And finally, I woke up on the beach. That's a fictitious entry from Journal of Jonah. Here's the text. We'll start with the first verse. Jonah 1, 17. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. All right? So let's look at this text. Let's take it apart a little bit. The Lord appointed a great fish. Can I duplicate a slide here? There, appointed. Look at the word appointed. That means to specifically assign, to direct, the tense is actually past tense, and God had appointed. Before any of this came to be, he'd already appointed this fish. And so what that tells you is the text is clear. This is not just a simple twist of fate. It's not just happenstance that this happened. It was pre-planned, powerful act of God's sovereignty. Because we so easily forget that God is so sovereign over all of creation, including all its creatures including you and me. He was sovereign over this fish. He's sovereign over Jonah. He was sovereign over the storms. He was sovereign over the waves. We just forget that. So it says that Lord appointed, and again, in the original text, it's past tense, had appointed. 
But we'll see that this fish was not punishment. It was provision. It was not punishment. It was provision. How else would Jonah have made it back to land? Jonah thought he was being punished and God was giving him a submarine ride. So he appointed a great fish. That word great you see all throughout Jonah. It's almost like everything is amped up. You, you see the great city of Nineveh, the great people, great sin. You see this great storm, this great fish. That word great is just amplified all through the book of Jonah. Now, in this case, it's referring to a fish. A fish, and this is a general term. It's a general term. We don't know if it was a whale or a shark or something else. It's a general term. And it's at this point in the story that people start pushing back in disbelief. This is one of the main reasons that people can't accept the book of Jonah. But I found this story from Provincetown, not too far from Hiatus. And uh, it says, and the story was published, uh, actually it was published just a few months ago, but the story actually happened a couple of years ago. It says that a little before 8 a.m. Friday, veteran lobster diver Michael Packard entered the water for his second dive of the day. And I'm going to kind of skip around the text a little bit. Uh, but... He's 56 years old. He's diving on a Friday morning. He saw a school of sand lances and stripers swimming by. And then all of a sudden, he felt a huge shove. And the first thing he knew, it was completely black. Packard recalled Friday afternoon, this happened Friday morning, Friday afternoon following in, in this release from the Cape Cod Hospital in Hyannis. So... Happened Friday morning, he was released from the hospital Friday afternoon. I could sense it, I was moving. I could feel the whale squeezing its muscles of his mouth. In case you haven't figured it out yet, he was swallowed by a humpback. Not swallowed, but he was eaten by a humpback. Initially, Packard thought he was inside a great white shark, but he couldn't feel any teeth and he hadn't suffered any obvious wounds, and it quickly dawned on him that he'd been swallowed by a whale. I was completely inside. It was completely black, Packard says. And I thought to myself, there is no way I'm getting out of here. I'm done. I'm dead. And all I could think of was my boys, and they were 12 and 15 at the time. Outfitted with scuba gear, he struggled, and the whale began shaking its head so that Packard could tell he didn't like it. He estimated that he was in the whale for about 30 to 40 seconds before the whale finally surfaced. I saw light, he said, and it started throwing its head from side to side, and the next thing I knew, I was outside in the water. And a crewman by the last name of Mayo, Mayo saw the whale burst from the surface, saw him throw the guy out. Initially, he thought it was a great white, but it wasn't. There was all this action on the top of the water, he said, and then the whale flung this man back into the sea. And so, the article goes on and talks about uh, studies on humpback whales. It says, the humpback that was described in this story 
was a medium-sized humpback. Suspects say that it was probably a juvenile feeding on fish. When a humpback opened its mouth to feed, it bellows out like a parachute, blocking all the animal's forward vision, which is why so many of them get entangled in fishing gear with their mouth and jaws. Incidents of feeding humpbacks injuring swimmers and divers, are especially in the instance of swallowing them, are extremely rare as to be almost non-existent. The esophagus on a non-toothed whale is small. Too small, actually, to swallow a human, but it can wrap its mouth around a large object and hold on to it till it spits it out. This was a couple of years ago. Packard was released from the hospital that afternoon with what he describes as a lot of soft tissue damage, but no broken bones. So if you push back about a fish swallowing somebody, you got to contend with stories like that. And that's not the only story. There's other stories out there, verifiable stories. Is it possible? Yes, it is possible. Does it happen a lot? No, it doesn't. But it's kind of like death. It only has to happen once. You know? Just once is all it takes, right? So it was a great fish of some type. We don't know. And it says, now this one says it swallowed Jonah. And we don't know if it was like Packard here and just wound up in the mouth and stayed there until they got thrown out. Or if it actually swallowed them all the way down. We don't know. Uh, the text kind of seems to say the latter when we get to another verse here later on. Uh, but the word means to engulf. The word used there for swallow means to engulf, which is kind of what we read about in Packer's story, to engulf. The word's also associated with to bring to ruin. You see the word used in Hosea 8.8. 8. Israel is, same word, swallowed up. Already they are among the nations as a useless vessel. It's the same word used in Jonah, swallowed up to engulf, to bring to ruin. And then one more thing about the, this, just one verse we've looked at so far. One more thing I want to show you is the three days and three nights. Unlike Packard, who was in there a short period of time, it says, the text says that he was in there for three days and three nights. And it's, the interesting thing about that is that Jesus refers to Jonah when he's talking about what? his death and his resurrection. He compares himself to Jonah, just like Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights, so will the Son of Man be in the belly of the earth. So Jesus refers to Jonah as if he's the real deal. And there's an obvious comparison there to Jesus' death and resurrection. All right, instead of going to some takeaways, let's, let's jump to the rest of the text I want to cover this evening. So now let's look at a little more text. Let's start in Jonah chapter 2, and we'll deal with the first 10 verses. We're going to pick up a little speed here. Otherwise, we'll never get finished. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish. That's another reference that seems to say he went down deeper than just the mouth. Saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Now notice, this is after the event. This is why you know Jonah was not riding in the belly of the fish. Just was, 
He was, might have been doing other things, but not that, right? So this was written afterwards, so it's written kind of past tense. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God, from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress. He answered me out of the belly of Sheol. That word Sheol means a place of darkness. We'll talk about that in a minute. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep. We've heard that word before in in first chapter. Being cast, being hurled. You cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas. And the flood surrounded me, and all your waves and your billows passed over me. And then I said, I'm driven away from your sight. And yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. It's important. And yet I shall. We'll get to that in a minute. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds wrapped around my head. At the roots of the mountains, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Isn't it interesting that it says the roots of the mountains? Think about it. They would not have known that there were mountain ranges in the sea. You know, they, they, they would not have known that. But God knew that. The bars closed upon me forever, yet you brought up my life from the pit. O oh Lord, my God, when my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you, into your holy temple. Those who pray regard, those who pay regard, excuse me, to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love but with the voice of thanksgiving will sacri- I will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay salvation belongs to the Lord and the result of this prayer and the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah out on the dry land I love the fact that the God's word uses the word vomit I don't know why, I just like that. You know, he's not making it pretty. This is what happened. Jonah got puked up on shore. Um, Which is another kind of way that the text tells you how dangerous and how difficult it is when you ignore God. So, let's see if we can take this text apart a little bit. Then, it's a small word, then... But it took, it says, then Jonah prayed. It took being swallowed by a fish for that to do that. Interesting, you could say, well, Jonah was so bad, he had to face death to do that. No, he was ready to die. He told him, throw me over. He didn't want to do it himself. But he said, throw me. So it wasn't death. Even being thrown overboard and facing drowning was not enough to get him to pray. Up until this point in the scripture, we have no reference in the story that Jonah prayed. Not on the boat, not when he's treading water. It was only when he got swallowed. Then he prayed. And too many of us do the same thing. We wait for desperate times. To prompt us to pray. And if the times aren't desperate enough, we think, I got this. 
I can pull this string, I can do that, I can figure this out, I can make it happen, I, I got this. We do that too often. How like that is us? So, most of the things that Jonah prays are actually from the Psalms. You know, if you have a Bible that has cross-references and you start looking at those little letters in the text, it's going to take you to the Psalms. There's a lot of references from the Psalms. Now, why is that important to note? Why is it important to know that most of what Jonah was praying is from the Psalms? Came after they were written. Absolutely. That sets some time frame for us. Yes, so he knew the Psalms, so he was praying them. Keep going, keep digging. Question, why are, you ask, why are we asking you to memorize these fighter verses? Came from his heart. You memorize scripture, and I know none of us love memorizing scripture, and we all say we're terrible at it, but it's because we don't practice. But we memorize scripture so that you got it when you need it. Jonah couldn't tread water or fight inside this fish and say, wait a minute, let me grab my Bible. He had to have it. So he had it when he needed it. You know, you put gas in your tank. Why? Because you know you're going to need it. You don't wait till you have to go somewhere and then say, okay, wait a minute, let me go to the store and let me fill up. Or I got to go 20 miles, so let me just get a gallon of gas. Or You don't do that. You fill up and you keep it in your tank so you know how you've got it when you need it. This is why this is important. Jonah knew the Psalms. Even when he was rebelling against God, the Psalms he had learned and memorized came back to him. It's really important for us to do that. How are you doing with these fighter verses, by the way? Not good enough. They're kicking my tail, I'm telling you. You know, because it's not, I mean, some of them, you're not re memorizing just one verse a week. You're memorizing two. And uh, they can all start to run together. If you, do you have a system? When I was working in the oil field, I carried a little 3x5 index card box with me, full of scriptures. Had a scripture written on one side, reference on the other. And I would just flip back and forth. Sometimes I'd start with a verse, sometimes I'd start with a reference. Because, again, it was dark ages, you know. Uh, Personal computers were brand new at that time, and they were ginormous, you know. Didn't have a phone in my pocket where I could put stuff. Old school works. If that'll work for you, do it. I have a scripture memory app on my phone that I plug in the verse I want to memorize. It gives me three options. First, it gives me the whole verse, and I type the first letter of every word. And then it goes through and takes the verse and pulls out about half the words. And I fill in the first letter of all the words, and then it just gives me a blank screen and says, do it. And then it reminds me when I need to go back and refresh myself, which is pretty cool if you pay attention to it. If you don't, you get way behind. That's why we're asking you to do that, not just so you can be good boys and girls and memorize Scripture. You need it when you need it. 
And usually when you need it, you don't have the Bible with you. Yes? Right. Right. Some of you are not memorizing. He's, he's a big ESV person. And some of you are memorizing out of your version that you like the best. And uh, so that's okay. Sometimes just when, you, when, when somebody says, you remember your verse, it's like test anxiety. You just blank out, you know. That's why you have to just keep repeating it. They'll just keep coming. Yeah. This is, yeah, because our brains have something called neuroplasticity, which means they're flexible, and they can grow, and they can change. No matter what your age, if you say, I'm too old to do that, it's just because you're not working it, because you're not too old. No matter what your age, your brain can shape and form and add neuroplasticity and it stays that way pretty much throughout your life and so you can do that uh, some of you say I can't memorize scripture but you memorize what somebody did to you five years ago you can remember right so keep at it because sometime you'll be like that Jonah, you'll be in a position where you can't grab your Bible, you can't type in a reference, you can't, you just got to know it. So anyway, I've spent too much time on that, but I wanted you to realize that that's really important. Then, that's just one word, then. Then Jonah prayed. Jonah prays from inside this fish. We don't have an indication that he prayed on the ship, like I said. We don't have any indication that he prayed any other time, but he prayed inside the whale. So it took that to get him there. Like I said, most of the things he prays from the psalm, so that's why it's important to memorize. But then it says, he called out. That's a, that's a distress. He called out in distress. Out of Sheol, that used to be a place that was kind of synonymous with Hades. Sheol is a Hebrew term. Hades is the Greek term. It's a place of darkness, a place of separation. And even there, it says, he hears and answers. So, God was not punishing him as much as he was trying to get him to a place where it was workable. Where he'd pray. Where he'd listen. So that God would hear and answer. So, Jonah calls out in distress. And I love the fact that even there he hears me. If you look at Psalm 139, and the psalmist says, Where can I go from your presence? And basically says, I can't go to the other side of the sea, you're there. I can't go here because you're there. If I go to the depths of Sheol, you're there. There's nowhere you can escape from God. Jonah didn't get this. Now remember a lot of times, a lot of the pagan gods were very restricted to a territory. So if you left the territory, the God didn't go with you. God went with him and he didn't get this, that there was no place he can run from him. You'd think he got it after God hurled the storm at him, but even then... He didn't get it. And then he says this. 
you cast me. You cast me. This was God's doing. It was not the sailor's doing. Jonah got cast into the sea just like the storm got cast at the ship. Jonah's a great book about God's sovereignty. A great book about God's sovereignty. And it says, it doesn't say the waves and the billows. It says your waves and your billows. Again, God is sovereign. He owns the oceans. They're his. The storm is his. It's all God's doing, his command over creation. And then you have another then. Okay? Now, this, this word here denotes a change. It's a, it's a word of contrast, if you will. Then, then I said, I'm driven away from your sight. Then Jonah starts to get it. All right? In other words, I'm driven from your sight, but I shall look upon your temple. The waters closed over me, deep surrounded me, weeds wrapped around my head, bars closed about me, but you brought me up from the pit. Jonah says one thing, and then he comes back and starts saying the other. Life was fainting away, but I remembered the Lord. Those who regard idols, but I will sacrifice to you and pay my vows to you. Jonah says, salvation belongs to the Lord. You know the problem with him saying that? Who is he talking about? Hmm? He's talking about himself. So Jonah proclaims salvation belongs to the Lord, but why is he running? Because he doesn't want God to bring salvation to the Ninevites. So Jonah still kind of got himself in the crosshairs of his view. He, he's even, and we'll talk, I'll say that for a minute. We'll talk about that in a minute. Finally, God shows mercy. And finally, as God shows mercy, it says, the Lord spoke. The Lord spoke, and the fish vomited him up. You notice that when God works, he typically speaks. God, the earth was formed and voidless, and God speaks, let there be light. He just speaks and things happen. And it's the same way here. It's the same God. He speaks and the fish unloads him. That is extremely powerful. Again, another reason why you and I need to learn and study and memorize God's word. Because he speaks. Power is in the speech. Guys, this is why we need to tell our wives, I love you. You know, there's power in that. It's like the old story. You've heard this story before. Old man and his wife are sitting on the front porch rocking, and she turns to him and says, you never tell me you love me. And he says, I told you when we got married, if something changes, I'll let you know. You know, there are power in our words. 
Some of you have words that you still remember that have hurt and stung and crushed and stabbed. And those were years and years ago. And you still carry the power of those words. And some of you who have had people speak life into you, you still carry that. Scripture tells us that life and death are in the power of the tongue. So when God speaks, he's giving us an example. Uh, I, I live fairly close to an elementary school in our neighborhood, and uh, I get out and walk in the morning, and so usually when I'm walking, I see all these parents. They're either trying to get their kids in the car to get them to school or get them out the door to get them on the bus or they're walking them to school. It's just a big routine. And uh, so I'm walking one day and I see this mom and this child walking towards me, headed to school. And they're loud. And I'm thinking, boy, there is some kind of ruckus going on here. I wonder what this kid did. And when they get closer, I realize they're not upset with one another. They're singing. And every once in a while, they stop and pray about the day. And then they sing some more. This is a parent that knew how to speak life into this child. So, God sets an example for us. Speak into things the way they need to be. Be careful with your tongue. God speaks, the fish vomits him out. Now, there's a couple of things I want you to notice about this. One, the parallels to Christ's resurrection. What are some of the parallels in this story to the resurrection of Christ? Speak up loud. Three days in the belly of the fish. Yeah, that was the easy one. The rest of them you got to dig for. <laughs> Say it again. They both went to Hades, if you will, to Sheol. They both went somewhere after this before they came back. What else? Say it again. Down and then up. That's a good point. I hadn't thought about that one. You go down, then you go up. Think of this, too. The idea of being forsaken. Both felt like they had been forsaken. It's interesting. Here's another similarity. What appeared to be a horrible event wound up being an act of salvation. I mean, it looks pretty horrible when you get swallowed by a fish. But again, otherwise he would have drowned and not got back home, or at least back to dry land. And it looks really horrible when you're crucified, but if you're not crucified, you can't resurrect. And if you can't resurrect, then the rest of us can't either. So what looks like a horrible event winds up to be an act of salvation. And again, a man seemingly comes back from the dead so that people will call upon God. There's a lot of similarities here. All right, let's do some takeaways <clears throat> out of those. We've gotten through chapter 2. That's plus. Some takeaways. Oh, wait a minute. I forgot that. There's something missing here. This is another thing I wanted you to notice. There is something missing here. There are a, there's a description of the difficulties. There's a description of Jonah's response to those difficulties. There's, there's even a rescue Jonah even has an air of arrogance about him. I mean, he really does. Look at this passage again. These are the words of Jonah. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. And yet, what was Jonah doing? He was running 
from steadfast love. A little bit arrogant. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. And what I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Now, granted, if you're swallowed by a fish, it's probably going to force you to turn around. But when you get to the rest of the book of Jonah, he doesn't turn quite that easily. So there's a bit of arrogance here. Yes? Uh, we'll get to that. We'll get to that because once I get into that, I'll get off on a big rabbit trail and I'll miss it. But yeah, we're getting to. Uh, but he never gets to Tarshish. He was headed that way when he was running from God. But when the fish spits him out on on dry ground, then he does what God tells him to do. He goes to Nineveh. So he never made it to Tarshish. He was on his way, and then he got interrupted by a slimy submarine ride. Um, all right, let's go to the takeaways. The sooner you turn to God, the better. Because the longer you wait, the worse it's going to get. It just will. The sooner, the better. We used to, when my kids were little, we had this rule with my kids. I will tell you one time, and after that, I won't tell you a second time. You'll just get a spanking. Which sounds really harsh, but my, my thinking in all of this was, if they're running out into the street in front of a car, I don't want to have to argue why they're supposed to stop and come back. Right? And so we did that for a long time. It, was, it worked really, really well. And, and it's kind of the same with God. The sooner you turn to God, the better off you'll be. Listen to this verse from Hebrews 3.15. As it is said, today, not tomorrow, not next week, but today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart as in the rebellion. It's referring back to the wilderness wanderings. And it says, today, if you hear his voice, do it. Don't harden your heart. And every time you don't do it, your heart gets a little harder. And it gets a, it's harder to get through. And so it takes more. I mean, the storm didn't do it. It took swallowing a fish. Jonah's heart just kept getting harder and harder. So there's one takeaway. Another takeaway, if there's no other way, God will cause us to hit bottom to force you to look at him. He will put you on your back so that you will look up. Trust me, I've been through that several times. It's no fun. Lamentations. I called on your name, O Lord, from the depths of the pit. God is not beyond throwing you in a pit to get you to look up. Um, and it's not, yeah, we'll get to that in a minute. We'll get to that in a minute. Another takeaway. Sometimes something that appears awful is actually a tool of God's deliverance. This one will mess with your head a little bit. Sometimes something that looks awful may actually be a tool of God's deliverance. I am so grateful that I have not gotten everything I prayed for. Because some of that would not have been good. It really wouldn't have. Some of the worst things that happened to me in my life were some of the greatest turning points that got me to the next place in my life. Did I like it in the midst of it? No. Did I kick and scream and fuss? Absolutely. But with hindsight, when I look back, 
that was needed to get me someplace better. And so sometimes what appears to be awful is actually a tool of God's deliverance. For instance, the Red Sea. They get up against the Red Sea. Pharaoh's army is bearing down on them. And they think, this is awful. Moses, what have you done? You set us up to be slaughtered. And what was awful was a tool of deliverance. Because it not only let them pass over out of Egypt, but it also drowned the Egyptians. None of which would have happened if they hadn't got their backs up against the Red Sea and didn't know where to go. Another example, big fish. Looks like an awful thing. It's a tool of deliverance. The, the obvious one, the cross. The cross is a place of horrible, torturous crucifixion. It looks awful. How could anybody be associated and righteous with God and suffer on a cross? And yet it's a tool of deliverance. I've told you about some of my broken bone stories. Every one of them worked that way. So, sometimes it can look that way, but it's not. All right, last takeaway. When you turn from God, he focuses on getting you back, not getting back at you. God does not need to get back at you. Why? Because he's God. He doesn't need to. My children, when they were teenagers, used to feel very entitled. Anybody ever had an entitled teen? Right? There's a few of them out there. And so they would tell me what they were, should be able to do and what they shouldn't and what they needed and what they wanted. And they'd go on and on and on and on. And... I would finally look at them when they got done and say, you do realize I have all the leverage, right? I own the house. I own the food. I own the car. The car insurance. The health insurance. The clothes on your back. It's all mine. I don't need to prove anything to you. And sometimes we forget that it's all God's. He has no desire or, or need to get back at us. He's God. He has everything. He owns everything. He knows everything. So when these things happen, when you turn from him, his focus is on getting you back, not getting back at you. If you don't walk away with anything but that tonight, burn that in your brain. God does not need to get back at you. He's trying to get you back. Can you think of any other takeaways from what we've studied this evening? Yes. He at least suspected, yes. Yes. And in a sense, she, she's wondering if Jonah felt like he knew better than God because he knew that if he went to Nineveh, then God would save the people. And he didn't want them saved. 
And so, and Jonah, in some ways, Jonah probably felt like he was being very patriotic because the Ninevites were hated enemies. And so if he suspects that God's going to save them rather than destroy them, then he's running so they'll be destroyed, which is pretty short-sighted of Jonah because it's not like God couldn't use somebody else. You know, God can use anybody to march into Nineveh. He was trying to get Jonah. Yes, Yes. Yep. And that's that's what you put, bring out a good point. When we read scripture, we often read it because we all, and we already know the end. So we read the book of Jonah and we know what he's going to do, right? But Jonah didn't. Good point. And, and so, when you read scripture, try to read it as if it's the first time, as if you don't know how it's going to turn out. Try to read it and put yourself in those people's shoes. Put yourself in Jonah's shoes, you know? Would you want to march into Russia and by yourself and say, hey, turn or burn? You're not going to want to do that, right? It's not going to feel right. Mm-hmm. Ah, good point. He loves for his children to pray his word back to him, to fulfill that word. That word's very powerful. You know, uh, back to some. You ask the question, do you think sometimes we think we know better than God? I can't ask, answer the we portion, but sometimes I think I do. You know, God, you're not listening. When God was, and I may have told you the story, when God was trying to call me into ministry, uh, I was kicking and screaming. I was pushing back. I was trying to rationalize. Uh, I would walk of a morning, and in my neighborhood people had boats in their driveways, and nice cars and I just knew if I went into ministry I was going to be a pauper and I'm so I I keep telling God God you already have me in this church I'm already leading small groups I'm already a deacon I'm doing all these things I just need to do more and better you know I'm a deacon I need to deke more just do more deking you know uh and, and man, I was running that game with God for a long time. And I swear I heard God say, you can do that, but you're not going to be satisfied. And finally, one day, I went out to go for a walk, and it was dark, because uh, it was really early in the morning, and it was pouring down rain. So I thought, well, I'm going to go across my driveway and into the church, and I'll just walk circles around the gym. And God and I are wrestling again, again, and again, and I was just exhausted. And I distinctly remember falling. I hadn't turned on the lights. The gym was dark. And I distinctly remember falling face down on the floor underneath a goal saying, that's it, I'm done. Whatever you want to do, if you'll just make it clear, whatever it is, I'll do it. And when I got up, we were done. That was it. But it had to get to that place. And Jonah had to get to that place. But you're going to see as we go through this book that he didn't really get to that place yet. Which is really interesting. The end of the book of Jonah is just 
perplexing and fascinating at the same time. Any more takeaways you can think of? Yes. No, no. Jonah talks about salvation comes from the Lord. We know he was a prophet. Um, and so that's not what was said. What was said was it's interesting that Jonah is proclaiming salvation comes from the Lord, but he was really only talking about him. He didn't want it to go for the Ninevites. You know, you know I want to be a good Christian, but that person over there, nah. Any other takeaways? Well, most of the people that push back about Jonah being swallowed by a fish was going to push back against the Red Sea. They're going to push back about all those miracles. And so, you know, it's enough to say it happens. You know, and if God wants to do it, he can do it. You know, when... when the children of Israel cross over Jordan. It says that God stacked up the waters upstream. That actually happens, has happened in history. Uh, and then it always starts flowing again. So some people say, well, the Jordan's done that before. Okay, but at the exact time the priest put their feet in the water. And you realize how much sooner that has to happen to be happening when they put their feet in the water that's some terrific timing right there so yeah it's just that way Well, and that's a good point. God often operates outside of our comfort zone. He really does. Uh, and to be honest with you, that's one of the things I hate about God, to be honest with you. Uh, yeah, <laughs> you know, I, I just, I like the comfort zone. That's why you don't see me down in the gym working out, because it's out of my comfort zone. Uh, but that's typically how he works. And so... Mm-hmm.
Miss Mary, I'm gonna I, I'm don't want to interrupt you, but I gotta speed you up because it's time to go. Yeah. It will. It will. And remember, you talked about not being very educated and still diving into the Word of God. Many of the people that wrote Scripture, they were influenced and inspired by the Holy Spirit, but they were not. They were not educated either. A lot of them, they weren't. And so, those are excuses that we use all the time. And when people say, "Well, I read Bible, but I don't get anything out of it," I say, "Keep reading. Just keep reading. You will." All right. Real quickly. Yeah, and you will never. You don't have to know all of it. No one's asking you to know all of it. Just find out what you need that day, that reading. All right, we got to go because some of you got to pick up kids, and I don't want to make the childcare people angry. Right. So let's pray. Father, thank you for this book, and uh, it's so easy for us to think of it as just a fishtail, but there is so much packed into this book. And so, Father, there are times in our lives that we're just like Jonah. You say yes, and we say no, and God, help us to learn from this book so that we can reduce those times and walk in your will more, and we ask for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you all. We'll see you next week.